Welcome to The Poison Room, a podcast where research just keeps happening. I'm Sylvie Kilgallen, and this episode is going to be the final episode on the Shugbra inscription, a subject on which I naively thought I wouldn't even be able to write one episode. And it's going to be a long one, because this is the longest script I've written. So let's just get to it, and talk about a whole bunch of theories about what these ten letters mean. And if you don't know what ten letters I'm talking about, then skip back a few episodes and find the first one on the Shugborough inscription. I'm going to start with one from Margaret, Countess of Lichfield, because it's short, not complicated, not related to the other theories in any way, and is absolutely not the right answer. Her claim is that the inscription was added by George Anson after Lady Anson's death, and is an initialism for the first line of a poem, of which he can only recall two verses. Quote, Out your own sweet veil, Alicia, vanishes vanity, twixt deity and man, thou shepherdess the way. End quote. She related the story of how she came upon this idea to Andrew Baker in a letter. The poem was told me, as a child, by the curate at my home, Whittington in the Valley of the Loon in Westmoreland, Yorkshire, and Lancashire, a quite lovely part of the world. Do you know it? I was astounded when the letters fitted even to the U for you. In those days, and before, lovers used to scratch on windows with a diamond, I-L-U, that meant I love you. So the U is right for it means you in lover's language. Now this Alicia story is a lovely story and a long one, and belongs to the Latin and Greek scholars who knew how the Romans were weaned from worshipping their gods and goddesses to becoming Christians. In my youth the clergy were great scholars, and this curate was no exception. In fact, he was brilliant. He was a wonderful storyteller and kept us enthralled. He told us there are seven hills outside Rome, and on one of them was a shepherdess called Alicia, whose name means the light of all happiness. To follow her, you had to give up all the vanities of the world and be simple, pure, tender, and loving, and guide and guard her flock from all evil. Selfless devotion was the service of the shepherdess Alicia. Thus were the Christian virtues taught the Romans by turning their gods and goddesses into Christians by these means. No scholar ever agrees that my childlike story of Alicia can be the answer. Perhaps it is too good to be true and too simple. Who will ever know? But I tell it to you, the V. V at the end of the line jogged my memory and vanishes vanity came to me and then the whole line and when each word fitted each letter, I was astounded. I tell it you for what it is worth, and make of it what you will. In a longer and more detailed letter to another researcher, Paul Smith, Margaret explains that the curate had a little book that contained poems that matched the stories he was telling, which she suggested were Roman myths, or myths surrounding Rome? In this letter, Margaret tells Smith that she thinks Alicia's name means joy and happiness, as opposed to light of all happiness. So, at best, the truth of this story is that her curate told her this story. In the form she remembers it, it cannot be a story from antiquity, because Alicia as a name is not old enough. 
And it also doesn't mean light of all happiness or joy and happiness. Alicia comes from the old German Adelheidis, which made it into French as Adelaide, and also gave us Alicia and Alice. So Alicia is an old name, but not anywhere near old enough. And Adelheidis means noble kind, as in she's a noble kind of person. Of course, it is possible that everything else is right and it's just the name she got wrong. For instance, there's a similar Hebrew name, Alyssa, which means great happiness. But there are no myths or legends about a shepherdess with that name, or any name, dwelling on the hills of Rome, or anywhere, converting people to Christianity, or even just behaving virtuously. Because I'm me, this is the kind of thing I could have spent days trying to figure out where various parts of this idea might have come from. But the fact that literally no one who's heard her story has known of or managed to find any trace of this story or a poem telling that story is fairly damning in and of itself. One more thing before we move on. And yes, I know this is ludicrously ironic. When I came to try and find a source for what Margaret thought the D and M stood for, I couldn't. So either I read it somewhere and can't remember where, or I thought it up myself whilst looking at her theory, but I think the D and M are the deity and man from the second line, twixt deity and man, thou shepherdess the way. It would make sense given that the positioning of the D and M frames the eight letters above, and artistically, I really like that idea. Still doesn't mean it's an actual contender, though. So that's Margaret's theory. A friend of hers, the author Oliver Stonnell, also had a theory on the meaning of the inscription. He suggested, Optimae uxoris, optimae sororis, vidus amantissimus vovit virtutibus. This would translate as something like best of wives, best of sisters, a most loving widower vows virtuously. And if you notice the very subtle reluctance in my tone there, it would be because, well, it's it's the grammar. It doesn't work. Uxoris and sororis are the words for wife and sister, respectively. Optimi is the word being translated as best. Optimi is an adjective. It accompanies a noun. Wife is the noun. Best is the adjective but they don't match in number or case. It's hard to give an example of the problem in English, because Latin is an inflected language and English is not. In English we can say best wife or best wives, and either makes sense. We can switch between wife as singular and plural without having to change anything at all about the word best. Not so in Latin. You'd need a different form of best for singular and plural wife. You'd also have to match the case and gender. Point is, optimi does not match with uxoris or sororis. And taking the final two words, wowit wotutibus, as vows virtuously, doesn't really work either. It'd be like vowed to or on or in the virtues. Now, you could 
fix the grammar without changing any of the initial letters. But, I mean, why would you? Even with the corrected Latin, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense on its own. Vowed virtuously to what? Add a self-fulfilling cryptic inscription to a monument we know was there during her lifetime? What did he do, and why did he need to make an inscription about it? And why did it need to be on this monument, and why did he have to do it in such a cryptic fashion? The one thing I will give this theory, and the others that we'll come to later that suggest it's something to do with Elizabeth Anson, is that we do know Elizabeth Anson had an interest in Poussin's paintings, and particularly the Arcadian Shepherd's paintings. The relief at Chagbra is actually based on the second painting Poussin did of this scene. He'd done a prior version, same tomb, same et in Arcadia ego, but the tomb is on the right of the painting, and taller. Two young shepherds lean in to read the inscription, but they don't have to crouch to do so. Behind them, the young woman also looks at the tomb with sort of mild interest. In the foreground, an old man reclines with his back to the viewer whilst pouring out water from a jar, presumably some sort of metaphor for time slipping away. Elizabeth Anson owned what appears to be a preparatory drawing for this first painting, though it may be a copy rather than the original sketch. There's a portrait of her painted by Thomas Hudson in 1750, and in that painting she's holding the drawing in her hand. And she possibly also produced a copy of the painting herself. What's a little bit weird is that this earlier version is actually portrait rather than landscape. If you wanted to pick a version that would look good on a relief that was, you know, portrait rather than landscape, then why not pick this version? And in this one, it'd still be obvious that the thing was a tomb without having to add some sarcophagus thing on top. Because in this painting, there's already something on top of the tomb. A skull. Almost makes you wonder if Shoemaker's copied the wrong painting. Anyway, yes, Elizabeth Anson was interested in Poussin's paintings on this theme, so it doesn't seem all that out there to suggest she might have had some influence in the choice of the relief, which would then sort of explain why an inscription would be added to this particular monument in her memory. Having conceded that, there's very little else that's convincing about this theory. It's essentially, hey, look, I've managed to construct a Latin sentence using these letters based on the idea that I want a sentence about death and Elizabeth Anson. This solution doesn't explain at all what the widower vowed to do, or why it would be such a secret, and why Thomas Anson wouldn't tell anyone. So that's two theories down. One that's definitely wrong and one that's actually sort of reasonable, but still probably wrong. But at least neither of them are headache-inducing messes of poor research, missing citations, and embarrassing mistakes. And speaking of poor research, it's time to address the Magdalene in the room. Now, as we've seen, Dave Ramsden thinks that the solution to the inscription is that, once run through a decryption process for a Beaufort cipher, it spells Magdalene. But he doesn't actually do anything with that info. He just puts it out there and leaves it at that. His main focus is on trying to establish that Anson was pretty dedicated to the idea of syncretic traditions and Renaissance Kabbalah. But 
It's not unreasonable to suggest that the only reason this occurred to him as a sensible answer was that he was primed to see Magdalene as a significant name. This is why he homed in on it without even acknowledging that Angarona would be an equally good fit. And it's the same reason he didn't notice that Deborah Neuer wasn't real. He had a pop culture understanding of these figures, which means he had no understanding at all of most of them. I'm not ruling out the possibility that Ramsden had decided the answer was Magdalene right from the get-go. I don't see a reason to include all common English women's names from a 300-year time period on your list of potential fits for a syncretic tradition, unless that's what you have to do to get the name you already think is the answer onto your list of potential solutions. But even if that wasn't the case, he was still primed to pick Magdalene out of a list as significant. Why? Because of an inconsequential little book called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. The book was written by Michael Bajant, Richard Lee and Henry Lincoln and was first published in 1982. If you somehow missed hearing about the theory this book proposes, here's the TLDR. Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married and had kids. After Jesus' death, Mary and their kiddos ended up in the south of France and intermarried with the Merovingians, the ruling family of the Franks, during the early centuries of the Common Era, from the middle of the 5th century CE to 751 CE, when the Carolingian dynasty took over. So the Holy Bloodline carried on, and the Grail is actually both the bloodline itself and Mary Magdalene's remains. This secret and the bloodline was protected by a group known as the Priory of Sion, which had various grandmasters throughout the years and which was very much made up by a guy called Pierre Plantard in the 1960s. Through a mixture of imaginative flair and uncritical acceptance of hoax documents, the authors of The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail managed to convince themselves, or at least convince others, that Poussin's painting was of a real place in France, and that the tomb depicted was also real. Because they were wholly unfamiliar with Latin, and apparently never bothered to consult anyone even mildly competent in the language, they decided that it's super odd that Poussin's inscription, et in Arcadia ego, doesn't make full sense because it lacks a verb. And this lack of a verb, they think, is weird. To break the phrase down, et is and, in is in, Arcadia is still Arcadia, and ego is I. So to translate it literally, you just get and in Arcadia I. You have to supply the verb am to complete the sentence. Poussin's phrase is, as we know, not actually ancient Latin. It first appeared in a painting by Giovanni Francesco Guercino, which is where Poussin joined it from. But it's perfectly intelligible. C. During most periods of the Roman Empire, the fields in which they grew their crops of the verb to be were barren. They just hadn't figured out the correct pH for the soil yet. So there frequently just wasn't enough supply of I am's and you are's to fulfil all their sentence requirements. So they saved their short supply of the verb and rationed it carefully. And most of the time they just missed it out and assumed people would be able to figure out what they were writing anyway. By which I mean, Romans loved 
missing out the verb to be when they were writing. You have to supply it all the time. There's nothing weird here. Anyway, they decide that et in Arcadia ego is actually an anagram of I tego arcana dei, which they present as meaning be gone, I conceal the secrets of God. And then something, 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 holy bloodlines, giant conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. So what's this got to do with Shagbra? Well, obviously, it's got to be involved somehow because there's a relief of that Poussin painting. But the section that mentions Shagbra is only three paragraphs long. Here it is in its entirety. Another and rather more mysterious piece of our jigsaw puzzle also surfaced in Britain, this time in Staffordshire, which had been a hotbed for Masonic activity in the early and mid-17th century. When Charles Radcliffe, alleged Grand Master of Sion, escaped from Newgate Prison in 1714, he was aided by his cousin, the Earl of Lichfield. Later in the century, the Earl of Lichfield's line became extinct and his title lapsed. It was bought in the early 19th century by descendants of the Anson family, who are the present Earls of Lichfield. The seat of the present Earls of Lichfield is Shugborough Hall in Staffordshire. Formerly a bishop's residence, Shugborough was purchased by the Anson family in 1697. During the following century, it was the residence of the brother of George Anson, the famous admiral who circumnavigated the globe. When George Anson died in 1762, an elegiac poem was read aloud in Parliament. One stanza of this poem reads, Upon that storied marble cast thine eye, the scene commands a moralizing sigh. Even in Arcadia's blessed Elysian plains, amidst the laughing nymphs and sportive swains, see festal joy subside with melting grace, and pity visit the half-smiling face where now the dance, the lute, the nuptial feast, the passion throbbing in the lover's breast. Life's emblem here in youth and vernal bloom, but reason's finger pointing at the tomb. This would seem to be an explicit allusion to Poussin's painting and the inscription Et in Arcadia Echo, right down to the finger pointing at the tomb. And in the grounds of Shugborough there is an imposing marble bas relief executed at the command of the Anson family between 1761 and 1767. This bas relief comprises a reproduction, reversed, mirror fashion, of Poussin's Le Bourgeur d'Arcadie. And immediately below it there is an enigmatic inscription which no one has ever satisfactorily deciphered. That's it. That's the whole thing. It's not exactly an essential piece of their jigsaw. They don't even suggest a solution. The only reason they mention it at all is because of the Poussin relief. Despite only being three paragraphs, there's still several things to note here. Firstly, that first paragraph is worded either badly or misleadingly, depending on how generous you're feeling. They've made it sound like the Earl of Lichfield, who was the cousin of the Grand Master of the Priory, is connected somehow to the Anson family who subsequently gained the Earl of Lichfield title and commissioned the Shepherd's Monument. They're not. The only thing connecting them is that they happen to have shared the same title. Sure, you could argue they're just bad writers, 
and this is just a segue from one point to the next, but it's a segue that has the effect of implying a connection between these figures beyond just so happened to hold the same title at different times. That the first Earl of Lichfield's relation to a supposed Grand Master of the Priory is somehow related to Thomas Anson commissioning the Shepherd's Monument and the Poussin Relief. There is not. But if you just go with the flow of the book, and don't think about it, that's what's being tacitly implied by the wording. So the seed is there, but presented in such a way so that they don't actually have to explain what the connection is. Because there is not. The second paragraph introduces another questionable statement, that some verses from a certain poem were read out in Parliament after George Anson's death. Now, they do actually give a footnote in this text at the end of the extract from the poem. One would assume, given that this is the only footnote, that it would include both the source of the poem and of the claim that it was read at George Anson's funeral. It does not. The reference is to a book by a man called Samson Erdswick, published in 1844, that contains the whole poem. Their reference is just to the page number that that particular stanza appears on. The author of that book mentions that the poem was written for Lord Anson, and that it was written by the Reverend Snade Davies. It does not mention this poem being read in Parliament after George Anson's death. In fact, I don't know of any evidence that it has ever been read in Parliament. Full disclosure, I did not spend that long trying to fact-check that claim. I checked the biography of George Anson, written in 1839 by John Barrow, and he seems to have done some pretty thorough research, and doesn't mention it at all, despite mentioning other tributes made to George after his death. And another reason I didn't spend too much time looking into it is because our old friend Andrew Baker has done some research about this poem too. Turns out, the poem's full title is To Thomas Anson, Esquire, of Shuckborough. Baker found a copy of it in the Staffordshire County Record Office. This copy appears to be a draft. There's some minor tinkering with the wording between the two, and some added verses in the version Erdswick reports. And this earlier version didn't contain the stanza about the Shepherd's Monument. Everything else is there, just with slightly different wording which perhaps implies that this first draft of the poem was written before the Shepherd's Monument was there or completed. So, what happened? Erdswick's source for the poem was George Harding, who wrote a biography of the poem's author, Snade Davies, in 1816. Harding includes the poem in the biography, but records the title of the poem simply as To Lord Anson. Given that George was the more famous of the two, and achieved a higher rank and status in society, it's easy to see how people assumed that the Anson the poem was written for was George. However, Shugborough was not George's home, and throughout the rest of the poem, Davis references an awful lot of different places, places which, thanks to Andrew Baker's diligent work, we know Thomas visited, and George did not. The point is, this mention of the Shugborough inscription is just a three-paragraph tangent in The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. 
They don't suggest an answer to the inscription. It's just, hey, this place has a relief of the Poussin painting on which we're building our theory, so let's mention it and also embellish it a bit to make it sound like this family had more to do with some of the figures we've decided were part of our made-up secret society than they actually did. Also, they got the date range for the monument's construction wrong. This book is the basis for contemporary interest in the Shugborough inscription. Because, obviously, if Poussin's painting is something to do with the Holy Grail and all that jazz, then the inscription beneath the reproduction of it at Shugborough must also be something to do with the Holy Grail, right? Now, as I said, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail was written in 1982. But the contemporary interest in the Shugborough inscription didn't kick off until 2004. So what happened in 2004? Well, there was an event. And that event took place because of something that happened in 2003. And the thing that happened in 2003 was the publication of Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. Brown's novel doesn't mention Shugborough at all but it brought the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail to the attention of the mainstream public. And at this point, the book and its minor reference to Shugborough came to the attention of someone who worked at Shugborough Hall, Richard Kemp. Kemp was the general manager of Shugborough Hall back then, and he got in touch with the Bletchley Park Museum and put together some sort of event. All the reporting on it is super vague, so I'm not entirely sure what the event was. From the Bletchley Park Museum side, it appears to have been coordinated by two former employees from the Enigma Code cracking days, Sheila and Oliver Lorne. I think that they basically just spent a few months thinking about it, and reviewing theories sent in from members of the public, and supposedly employees of other intelligence groups like the NSA. The problem with this Bletchley Park thing is that the museum didn't put out their own report or anything, nor did Shugborough. The only documents there seem to be about this conference gig are news reports, and those news reports are full of really bad journalism and a failure of basic fact-checking. For instance, the BBC article about it claims that, quote, Poussin was believed to be a Grand Master of the Knights Templar, an order which captured Jerusalem during the Crusades and were known as the Keepers of the Holy Grail. End quote. That's one sentence and there are multiple things wrong with it. Firstly, even in conspiracy land I can't find anyone claiming that Poussin was a Grand Master of the Knights Templar. And the idea that they were known as Keepers of the Grail is weird. Known by whom? because it wasn't their contemporaries. This is not the time to get into the details now, but here's the basics. You might think, based on contemporary culture, that the idea of the Holy Grail has been around for the last, say, 2,000 years. It has not. It's an idea that emerged at the end of the 12th century CE in a genre of poetry known as Grail Romances you have these grail romances to thank for Monty Python and the Holy Grail, because these romances are the starting point of the legends of King Arthur and his knights seeking the grail. The vast majority of the grail romances have nothing whatsoever to do with the Knights Templar, a group which was formed around 1120 CE. So, 
The Templars are around for 70 odd years before the first story of knights of any sort seeking the Holy Grail emerges. Around 1205 CE, a Bavarian poet, Wolfram von Eschenbach, produced his Grail romance, the poem Parsifal. This is the first Grail romance that maybe mentions the Templars. And it's a maybe because the word Eschenbach mentions for the groups of knights who are protecting the Grail is Templizer, whereas the usual word for Templars at the time was Tempelherren. Based on this, Richard Barber argues that even in this romance, the knights are not supposed to be the knight's Templar. Malcolm Barber, on the other hand, thinks it's clear that the Templizer would still have brought the Templars to mind, and that the Templars are indeed the basis for Eschenbach's protectors of the Grail. I'm far from qualified to have an opinion on that, and each Barber makes some interesting points, but my point is that, either way, this is not a huge connection between the Templars and the Grail. So, at a time when Grail romances were common, the Templars weren't in the picture much, if at all. In fact, contemporary ideas of the Templars as a secret society protecting the Grail can't actually begin until the arrest and dissolution of the Templars at the start of the 14th century. To cut a long story short, the Holy Grail and the Holy Blood is basically the start point of the idea that the Templars were protecting the Holy Grail. Point is, the Beeb is wrong. Poussoir wasn't believed to be a Grandmaster of the Knights Templar, which was an order that was dissolved at the start of the 14th century, and who had very little to do with the Holy Grail until the 1980s. Also, they didn't capture Jerusalem during the Crusades. Back to coverage of this Bletchley Park Museum event. It wasn't just the Beeb writing nonsense. The Guardian contributed this gem. Quote, Books have been written, documentary films made, and poems penned in an attempt to explain it, but the mystery contained in an 18th century monument in the grounds of Lord Lichfield's estate in Staffordshire has eluded interpretation. End quote. This was written in 2004. Precisely zero books have been written about it at that point. I know of zero documentary films made about it, and I think we've covered all the poems that there are, and the only reference is the mystic ciphers that conceal her name, which isn't exactly an attempt to explain it. CBS News proclaimed that, quote, legend says it reveals the location of the Holy Grail, end quote. There is no such legend. And the Independent wrote this, quote, Thomas Anson, an admiral in the British Navy, attracted to codes by his seafaring days, commissioned the Shepherd's Monument to adorn the estate he built. Like, come on, people, you're talking about George. This particular detail is not hard to get right. The article in The Independent goes on to claim that it was his wife who provides the trail toward the Holy Grail, because apparently she was believed to have associations with the Knights Templar, which was new to me. No one else mentions it. Don't know where that came from. So my current working theory is that the letters are actually a curse that force anyone who tries to write about it to write some really stupid stuff. 
And speaking of having written stupid stuff, I have a correction of my own to make. Back in episode 22, I said that the first source I could find for the whole Darwin Dickens Wedgwood tried to solve this idea was the Daily Telegraph. Writing this episode, I realised that basically every single one of these articles repeats that claim, and many of them were published before the article in the Telegraph. So, it's still a totally unproven idea with no evidence provided anywhere to back it up, and which doesn't seem to have existed before 2004, but it wasn't the Telegraph that started it. My bad. But it is a claim that emerged with this particular event. So either someone at Shugborough suggested it, or all the other articles on the event copied it from the first news outlet that published it. I don't know why I didn't find these sources before. It is embarrassing on my part, and therefore there must clearly be a curse at play to explain this error. Moving on. From reading all the different news reports, I get the definite impression that Richard Kemp was the driving force behind a lot of this and particularly ramped up the nonsense Grail connection theory. If you remember the grumpy A.J. Morton from the first episode, you can kind of see why he was annoyed about this. From a publicity perspective, it was a pretty effective idea. From an actually caring about the solution and or actual history perspective, it was not. But at least at the beginning of the event, Kemp did actually say this, quote, they could, of course, be a family secret, which everyone in the family knows about and which is of little consequence. But it's like Everest. You climb it because it's there. There's a code here, so everyone wants to unravel it. End quote. But that was a solitary comment that came right at the end of one of the articles. And who cares about that after the damn grail has been mentioned? The organisers of the event don't seem to have released a formal report, as far as I can tell. But at the end of the event, there was no one theory that had convinced both Sheila and Oliver Lorne that it was THE answer. Sheila favoured the suggestion first put forward by Oliver Stonnell, whilst Oliver Lorne, according to most reports, favoured some drivelly grail nonsense. The best explanation of the theory Oliver Lorne supported is given by Stephen Morris, writing for The Guardian. Quote, According to the code-breaking centre in Buckinghamshire, the most compelling theory comes from an American defence expert based in the UK who has asked Bletchley Park to keep his identity secret. He tried using a decryption matrix, a common device in code-breaking, to find out whether a message was hidden in the letters on the monument and in the phrase et in Arcadia ego. After painstakingly drawing up 82 matrices, the letters S-E-J popped out. He realised that if these letters were reversed, they spell J-E-S. Reversing the letters was just what a member of the Prior de Zion might have done. From this, he hazarded the guess that Jesus was a keyword which would help him crack the code. The man drew up another type of code-breaking chart, a flag grid. Using the keyword Jesus, he came upon another phrase. Jesus H. Defy. The codebreaker believes, though he has not said why, the H stands for the Greek letter Chai, which has the meaning of Messiah. He thinks the phrase can be translated as Jesus, as a deity, Defy. 
a jumble to the modern ear, perhaps, but it might have made sense to a member of the Plier de Sion, which believed that Jesus was an earthly rather than a heavenly king. The codebreaker's next job was to try to prove he was right to use Jesus as his keyword. Employing a very complex technique, he turned crucial letters into numbers. The sequence, 1, 2, 2, 3, appeared. He spent a day in the archives at Shugborough trying to find out the significance of the numbers. He found nothing. But, just before leaving, went for another look at the monument, and says he spotted the sequence faintly scratched around the sides of it. End quote. Gosh, he spent one whole day in some archives. A whole day, guys. One whole day. So, obviously, there's a chance that Morris's reporting has simplified things too much, or just skipped over crucial details, but going from Oh look, here are the letters S-E-J, and if I reverse those, based on the practices of a non-existent group, I get J-E-S, which is not even the word Jesus, but let's pretend it is, is something else. And then apparently he just carried on and went, Okay, I know this letter is a H, and in Greek that would represent an eater, but let's pretend that it represents a chai, which is usually represented by the letter X. It's hard to believe an actual professional codebreaker looked at this and went, yup, seems legit. And that's even without the added bonus of, also it gave me some numbers and I couldn't figure out what they were, but I just checked on the monument again, and even though no one else has ever reported seeing these numbers and I didn't take a photo of them or tell anyone exactly where they were so they could go verify them, they totally definitely actually exist. And even putting all that aside... Jesus H. Defy? Seriously? Of all the things you could encode that would represent the same idea, why the hell would you word it in such a clunky, ridiculous way? Now, having said all that, in an article in The Independent, Lorne's thoughts on this theory are phrased far more cautiously. Apparently, he said he was not sure that this idea was conclusive. Lorne acknowledged that the anonymous American had made guesses but added that he'd followed up the historical context more thoroughly than others. Which, of course, is really not saying a lot. And being Grail-related, this is, of course, also the theory that Richard Kemp, the general manager of Shugborough at the time, thought was the answer, stating he thought that this was proof of a Grail connection. Which it wasn't. Apparently, according to the report in The Guardian, the anonymous American was last seen, quote, heading back to Staffordshire to test his theory that the alignment of other monuments built by George Anson on the estate might point to the Grail's position. End quote. My personal headcanon here is that whoever this guy was, he was hoping to become part of the mystery by disappearing never to be seen again, and he's probably super disappointed that no one seemed to care that he didn't reappear at all, with or without the Grail. Sheila Lorne, by the way, favoured Oliver Stoner's Latin with bad grammar theory of vowing virtuously to the best wife and sister. So there's another theory we're throwing out. That's five down and some unfathomable amount left to go. Let's just get on to the next one already. Another Latin solution. This one is provided courtesy of Duncan Fishwick. Now, 
I had a bit more hope for this one because it was published in an actual academic journal by someone who actually has some expertise in Roman history and could actually form a grammatically correct Latin phrase. But Fishwick starts with the same unsighted summary of claims about Darwin and Dickens and blah 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 blah. He then claims George Anson retired to Shugborough. He did not. He credits George for renovating the house and purchasing more land for the estate. He did not. And then, weirdly states that Thomas only started commissioning a series of nine sculptures or monuments for Shugborough after George had died, which is contrary to all evidence of several of the monuments existing before, because Elizabeth Anson, who died before George, literally writes about them in some of her letters. Fishwick also claims that Thomas commissioned James Stewart to build nine monuments in the park, but several of these were probably built by James Wright. And he talks about the Priory of Zion like it's a real thing with real actual evidence to support it, and real actual research done by people who know what they're doing. He cites their claim that Snade Davis's poem was read out in Parliament after the death of George Anson. It's such a mess, I'm not going to bother telling you everything that's wrong, but, like, we're two pages into this article and already I've gone from, okay, actual researcher publishing in a peer-reviewed journal, to, oh, Curse of the Monument Strikes Again. I did not ever expect to read an actual academic article citing the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail as if it was a work of serious academic merit which could be trusted for accuracy. Actually, yeah. Okay, I'm not going to tell you about all the mistakes, but there is one that I have to mention, because it was just one of those things that made me stare at my screen in disbelief, and I just... there are no evens with which I can. This is not a thing that should have been written by an actual academic writing in an actual academic journal that was actually peer-reviewed by other actual academics and given the OK. The offensive statement is in a footnote, which states, quote, Among the other monuments still surviving, the Lantern of Dementhoses is incomprehensible. As the name Dementhoses is not recorded in W. Pape and G.E., the word would appear to be fictitious and the monument a folly. Conceivably, the first two syllables echo the word demented slash dementia, to which Thomas Anson, who is reputedly fond of practical jokes, has added two syllables to create a Greek-sounding name. End quote. So. 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 What's wrong with this, you ask? What is it that's blown my mind? Well, Fishwick has dedicated enough time to trying to figure out where this Dementhoses name came from, consulting colleagues and books and coming up with an explanation. And do you know what the real explanation is? you know why he can't find that name anywhere? It's because he got the name wrong. It is not called the Lantern of Dementhoses. It's called the Lantern of Demosthenes. This is another name for the Karagic Monument of Lysicrates in Athens. I did not have time to research how it came to also be called the Lantern of Demosthenes, but it was. And Demosthenes is a perfectly comprehensible Greek name, and there's a fairly well-known Athenian statesman by that name. 
well, well known if you're a classicist or ancient historian, I guess. Somewhere along the way, I guess, someone made a typo when they were writing down the name of this stupid monument, and instead of double-checking or realising it was an error, Fishwick came up with an entire explanation for what the name might mean. Okay, so, setting all that aside, what is Fishwick's actual theory? Well, he thinks it's not a code, it's just an inscription that follows all the rules of Latin inscription writing, and comprises almost entirely common abbreviations. Let's start with a familiar ground. Fishwick thinks the D and M stand for Dismanibus. Fair enough, no objection from me on that one. It's a reasonable guess, given the evidence. We don't need to run through all the details of how Fishwick gets his solution. He basically presents the options for what each letter, or group of letters, might stand for based on what it stands for in actual Roman inscriptions. Sometimes there are multiple options, so he's making calls based on which seems most likely for the context, and the solution he ultimately reaches is optimae uxoris ossa cita vices agens ut vovorat, or votum animo ut vovorat. So, to give him some credit, Fishwick acknowledges that there are two options for the last four letters, and both are, in his eyes, viable, and there's no information to give preference to one over the other. His translation of these possibilities into decent English are To the shades of the departed, her husband has laid to rest the bones of his excellent wife, discharging his duty as he had vowed. Or, to the shades of the departed, in keeping with the vow he had made to her spirit, her husband has laid to rest the bones of his excellent wife. I have problems with this potential solution. In fact, I have several problems with just one part of this solution. It requires you to accept that Anson deviated from Roman inscription writing to use a U for Uxoris. So this is way out of line with Fishwick's claim that this monument is based completely on rules following Latin inscription writing. His justification for this deviation is that, had a V been used, then it could also stand for we're, a word meaning man, or husband, or indeed, a whole bunch of other words. So, using the U makes it certain that Uxor is intended. And he finishes this explanation by commenting that, quote, The Shugbra text is, of course, an 18th century document, not a Roman. End quote. The problem with this is that at the end of the inscription, Fishwick wants to render the VV as Ut Woerat which requires one of those Vs to represent a U. This is the standard way it works in Latin inscriptions. Both V and U are represented by a V. So, Fishwick wants us to accept that Anson deviated from tradition for the U at the start of the inscription, because, after all, it's an 18th century text, not a Roman inscription, but at the end, Ut was rendered with a V because that's how Latin inscriptions work. This seems rather like wanting to have your cake and eat it too. Especially since, at another point, he suggests that the reason this inscription is solely single-letter abbreviations is because, quote, the author was intent on displaying his familiarity with 
and expertise in the finer points of Latin inscriptions. End quote. So, in Fishwick's solution, the inscription was added by Thomas Anson after both George and Elizabeth had died, simply to state that George buried his wife as he vowed. And again, we are left asking, why would this be something of note? Like, this is what you expect people to do. It's not as if the standard practice at the time was to load dead bodies into a cannon and fire them off into a lake. Why would burying her be something that needed recording? And why is it something Thomas would refuse to explain to people? I guess it could just be because he was a private person. Ultimately, this is certainly the most sensible of the solutions we've encountered so far, though definitely not without its faults. The biggest being that there really does seem to be no good justification for taking both a V and a U to represent words beginning with a U, especially if one is insisting that the author wanted to show off how familiar they were with Latin inscriptions. Despite this, Fishwick finishes his paper on an irritating note. He suggests that, basically, the entire landscaping and design of the garden is about Elizabeth Anson, and then goes off the rails completely. Quote, the total of ten monuments at Shugborough points to a vast park of recollection built partly at least in her memory. There is nothing explicit to link the Ansons with Freemasonry, but the pattern of monuments across the parkland, magical symbols on the Doric columns framing the Shepherd's Monument, perhaps even deliberate changes in the reverse etching of Poussin's painting, mysterious though all remain, strongly suggest that the rumours of their involvement in secret societies did have a basis, in fact. End quote. If you're wondering where this sudden talk of magic symbols on the columns comes from, me too! This is the first time he's mentioned them, in the final damn sentence of his article. No explanation provided. No photo. No nothing. This is the first and only time I've seen this idea mentioned, and I have spent a lot of time looking at photos of these columns and I cannot see any magic symbols. I strongly suspect that this idea too might have come from Kemp, since he does seem to have been the source for an awful lot of the mystic nonsense about this monument, and the supposed rumours of their involvement in secret societies started only with the publication of The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, and only took off in 2004 after Kemp launched his publicity campaign. So yeah, once again, someone has managed to write about this inscription and include a whole lot of nonsense, but in the middle of all the rubbish is at least a sensible theory about what it could mean. But it does still have problems, and I'm not particularly convinced by it. Though perhaps I would have been more convinced had it not been surrounded by so much nonsense. And speaking of nonsense, here's one final bit. Much like Dave Ramsden, Fishwick also refers to the ossuary on top of the tomb, and the pyramid resting on top of it. In fact, calling it an ossuary is part of his justification for translating the O as ossa, meaning bones. No, Fishwick does not offer any reason for declaring it an ossuary either. So why am I bringing this up? Last episode, I mentioned that it clearly could be other things, like a Roman cinerary urn but it looked like one of the elements on some of the funerary monuments I've seen in various churches in the UK. 
but I couldn't remember any specific names or find any pictures of what I was thinking of. So, not having any evidence to support that claim, I left it. Then, I came across an article by Eileen Harris, which is a rather sensible discussion of the use of Poussin's works in funerary monuments at this time, but which I didn't get a chance to fully discuss here, because she doesn't actually propose a solution herself. But if you want to read one thing from the bibliography about this, I would recommend her article, which is publicly available. Anyway. I like Eileen Harris, because what she writes is very sensible and well-researched, and also because she mentions the sarcophagus on top of the tomb in the relief. Harris referred to it as a Gibsian sarcophagus with a pyramidal lid. Firstly, it was nice to see someone else call a lid a lid. Secondly, not only does she call it a Gibsian sarcophagus, but she gives an actual citation for examples of what she means. So, I could actually go check this out myself just by following a simple citation. So, for clarity, James Gibbs was a very influential architect in Britain, working during the first half of the 18th century. You know, just before Anson started expanding his gardens. Gibbs designed a lot of buildings, but also monuments for dead people. And many of those monuments include the kind of sarcophagus that looks very similar to the one in Shoemaker's Relief. I will post pics of a bunch of his designs on the Twitters, so you can go and behold for yourself and see that, yeah, actually, this is very much what that looks like. We're not done running through possible solutions, though. I know you've probably been sitting here thinking, but wait, that guy who literally wrote the book on Thomas Anson, Andrew Baker? What theory does he favour? Because, you know, he's got an awful lot more contextual knowledge than, well, anyone. His favoured theory, however, is not one which seems particularly likely to me. It's another Latin solution. It's by a guy called Steve Regimbal, who first read about the mystery thanks to the publicity generated by the collaboration with the Bletchley Park Museum. Basically, he decided he wanted to know more, and had started by looking at a book of paintings, and discovered that a painting that is essentially a meditation on the inevitability of death, the brevity of life, etc., is called a vanitas. He looked up vanitas in the glossary and discovered that it refers to the phrase vanitas vanitatum, a phrase that comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of Ecclesiastes. And obviously, Vanitas Vanitatum has two V's in it, so, like, gotta be something there, right? The English translation of that Latin verse is Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. All is vanity. Oh damn, would you look at that? We're up to three V's. So, obviously the next step is to go look at the Latin, right? So, off he goes and consults the Latin Vulgate Bible to see what the Latin is. And it's Vanitas Vanitatum Dixit Ecclesiastes Omnia Vanitas. Womp womp. Doesn't fit. Too bad. Guess it's not that then. Oh, but wait. What if, for unexplained reasons, we decide to translate it from the English back into Latin, but like different Latin. Let's just 
use different words. Let's just mess around and see if we can come up with the words and a word order that will allow us to make this quote fit the initials on the inscription. Because this is absolutely a reasonable thing to do, and not at all based in the fact that we'd already decided what we wanted the answer to be, and are now really trying our hardest to make it fit. To be fair, as Reginbol explains, if Anson is Anglican, then he probably wouldn't have used the Latin Vulgate as a source. It's a Catholic thing. But if you're going to use that objection, why would this Anglican want the quote to be in Latin at all? Who knows? And more importantly, who cares? Because Reginbold sat down with a Latin dictionary and figured out how to translate it in a way that would render the initials as O-U-O-S-V-A-V-V. Orator ut omnia sunt vanitas ait vanitas vanitatum. Now, you might think there's something impressive about the fact that he managed to generate a sentence with the words in the right order so as to match the initials. There is not. There might be, if you were working in a language like English, but not in Latin. As you're probably tired of me saying by now, Latin is an inflected language. This means that the order of words in a sentence can be shifted around far more freely because the word's function in a sentence is dictated by the form the word takes, not its position in a sentence. In English, the cat pooped on the carpet and the carpet pooped on the cat are very different sentences in terms of what information they're conveying, because who's doing what and who's having what done to them is conveyed by the word order in the sentence. Not so in Latin. In Latin, the function the word has in the sentence is indicated by changes made to the ending of the word. For instance, the nominative form of the Latin word cat is files. Nominative means that in the sentence it would be the one doing the verb, the pooping. The accusative form of the word is philem. Accusative means that it's the thing having the verb done to it. So, in Latin, you could have the word for cat at the start of the sentence, followed by the verb to poop, and then have the word for carpet at the end, and still construct the sentence to say either the cat pooped on the carpet or the carpet pooped on the cat, based on whether you've written files or philem, and change the ending of the word for carpet to match its new role in the sentence. Make sense? The point is, it's a lot more difficult in English to construct a meaningful sentence out of a set of initials, because the order of those initials has a much, much greater impact on the meaning of the sentence. Whereas in Latin, you can play around with it like a jigsaw until you get the order you need. So, all Reginbol had to worry about was finding words that started with the right letters, not words that started with the right letter and also made sense at that particular place in the sentence. Reginbol's fairly cocky about his solution and told Ed Kemick, writing for Billings Gazette, quote, If this isn't what it is, it's an incredible coincidence. If it's not, give me something better. End quote. Kemick finishes his article by stating, quote, Reginbol is not a code expert, and he's not a classical scholar, but sceptics need to disprove his theory, not question his credentials. The truth is there for all to discover. End quote. I agree that his credentials aren't where scrutiny should necessarily lie. Knowledge and understanding of a subject and credentials are often wholly unrelated. However, no. No, it is not the job of sceptics to disprove his theory. 
That's not how that works. It's up to him to prove it. And, hey, if I dick around with translating this phrase into Latin, I can make it fit, is not proof. It's just a theory. A theory that provides no explanation whatsoever as to why Anson would have done this. And part of Regimbal's process to get his answer was to imagine that the guy who commissioned the monument, i.e. Thomas Anson, performed a naive back-translation because, quote, I imagine the guy's like me. He's not an expert. He's a dabbler. End quote. To which I say, nope. No. Nuh-uh. No. Do not pasco. Do not collect £200. This is a man who was a member of the landed gentry in England in the 1700s. He did not dabble in Latin. This was a standard part of his education. Why on earth Reginald thinks that it's reasonable to assume that Thomas Anson would have had an understanding of Latin equivalent to his is beyond me. It is not a reasonable thing to assume. Reginald's whole argument here is, essentially, hey, this type of painting is called a vanitas, which comes from the phrase vanitas vanitatum, which comes from Ecclesiastes, and if I take the King James English translation of that and muddle around translating it back into Latin by tweaking and tweaking until it fits, then voila! That's not a good argument. I don't know why you'd think it was. The idea that maybe the phrase is a meditation on the brevity of life and the perpetual shadow of death, matching the et in Arcadia ego of the relief, is a totally fine suggestion. No problems with that. Maybe the phrase is based on the English translation of the Latin translation of Ecclesiastes, but translated back into Latin using different words. Not a fine suggestion. Bad. Requires way more justification. There's one more theory we're going to cover this episode. This one appeared in 2014 and was presented by a guy called Keith Massey, who formerly worked for the NSA as an Arabic linguist and who, in 2014 at least, was working as a Latin teacher. He suggested it means oro ut omnes sequanta viem ad veram vitam, which he translates as I pray that all may follow the way to true life. Much like most who favour translating it as a Latin inscription, Massey thinks the DM stands for Dis Manibus. Much like Regimble, Massey noticed something that reminded him of a biblical passage. In this instance, it was the proliferation of V's at the end of the inscription, which reminded him of John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or, in Latin, Ego sum via et veritas et vita. Obviously, despite having the required amount of V's, that phrase does not have the required amount of any other letter, but hey, that didn't stop Regimbal, and it's not going to stop Massey either. If you take Wea, Veritas, and Wita as the base, then you can work up a sentence around them that matches the requisite letters, and I honestly do not understand how someone thinks this is a valid way to go about trying to solve what this means. I just don't get it. And much like Regimbal's proposal, whilst it contains a phrase that has words beginning with the right letters in the right order, that's pretty much all it has going for it. There's no explanation for why that should be the answer, or why it would be such a big secret, 
or how that would relate to Poussin's painting. It's just, hey, I managed to come up with words that fit these letters. That's it. Okay, so we've covered six different theories so far this episode, and two others in previous episodes. Eight in total, and we're still so far from done. Because more than one person has written an entire book about this. But I'm going to call it quits on this topic for now, because five episodes on this damn inscription is a lot. However, if you enjoyed listening to me discuss these theories, especially Dave Ramsden's book, and talk about how to analyse an argument and also tear my hair out a little bit, and you'd like to hear more of that in the future, then let me know. If people like it, I can chip away at some bonus episodes between working on other stuff. And not gonna lie, not having covered all these theories bothers my completionist little heart. Gotta catch them all, you know? But for now, well, I've still got a few more theories to share with you. See, as bad as some of the suggestions we've seen so far are, they're far from the bottom of the barrel. So I'm going to leave you with a taste of what some of the more uh, incoherent theories look like. And of course, there's no better place to find incoherent theories than the hive of scum and villainy that is the comments section on a news article. So here are some choice comments from one of the BBC articles about the inscription. Fair warning, making sense is not a dominant quality in many of these. Here's the first one. An older solution, A, refers to Genesis 50.25. Deus visitabit vos asportate vobiscum osa mea de loco isto. The initials from the words visitabit vos asportate vobiscum are VVAV. The reverse, VAVV, is a fragment of D-O-U-O-S-V-A-V-V-M. This solution is correct, but incomplete. The completion, B, is Apocalypse of John 11.14 Why secundum abit, ecce why tertium veniet quito Removing the second, the fourth, the sixth word, etc. Four words remain. Why abit, why veniet? Its initials are in correct order. V-A-V-V Apocalypse of John 11.14 in English means The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe cometh quickly. The first, not mentioned woe, means, in this case, A. The second woe means B. And the third woe? The end letters of Y, Abit, Y, Weniet are etet. The reverse is tet, the French word for head. The Latin word for head is caput. Other significance of caput is chapter. The end letters of visitabit vos asportate vobiscum are tessum. The reverse is mest, or mest. Mest is a fragment in Evangelium of John chapter 12, 5. C. Quare hoc und guentum non veneit trecentis denareis et datum est egenis. The third woe means C. If you want to know more, contact Bletchley Park. They have my complete solution. It is too long to be publicated here. It's too long to be publicated here, guys. I wonder what the museum did with all the submissions they got. Might just 
add that to the to-do list. Contact Bletchley Park Museum re Shugborough inscription. Anyway, moving on. This next one is... Honestly, I can't tell if this is trolling or genuine or what. Read it backwards, then you get masculinus vulgo vocatus ad valorum sacro olio obirent ubi decolatus, and that means forceful in the people mouth, calculated to value, sacred olioso, where his survive beheaded. I really have no clue what that means. Me neither, dear commenter. Me neither. These next two are comments from the same user. I'm not sure if they're actually related to each other, though. Here's the first one. Hi. It seems to me that the code, when following basic numerology, points to chapter and verses of the Hebrew Bible. Subjecting all things under his feet. In subjecting all things to him, he left nothing not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see all things subject to him. Then followed by, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, too, and not the very image of them, it can never make perfect those who come to worship by the same sacrifices. 1. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, 2. And not the very image of them, it can never make perfect those who come to worship by the same sacrifices. This, plus two other verses, then goes over my head with third dimension. Though there seems to be something else in V-A-V-V. Just may, it is Tulagu poetry. I mean, I doubt it. Not sure why it would be written in Telugu at all. Telugu is one of the official languages of India, in case you didn't know. But I have no idea why they think it's relevant here. Anyway, here's their next comment. If one were to take each of the top line as it relates to a number, and then take each of the numbers as a whole number to its corresponding letter of the alphabet, in order that you make them weigh the same. Now take one letter from the front and back. Working inwards, they resemble a colour code or star location. A, B, E, B, 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 A, B, A, A, E, B, A, B. Note also the similarity in the order of the letters. It's all food for thought. Then one could even take the first four round letters against the second four sharp letters, write the alphabet into a block of six. Once again, they weigh the same 14. That then being the five root number of knowledge. No idea. Words no longer mean things. Moving on. This one is a bit more intelligible though equally nonsense. I'm currently engaged on writing a book about the Exodus. Coincidentally, I'm at the stage where Joseph's brothers go down to Egypt. There's a silver cup that was placed in Benjamin's sack, the object being to allow Joseph's brothers to redeem themselves. Staffordshire was a Catholic hotbed of powerful families linked to each other through marriage and through the court. 
Charles II hid in the area, the gunpowder plot has associations with the area, and Mary, Queen of Scots, took refuge in a castle near Shugborough Hall. Noting the date that the Holy Grail is supposed to have been brought back to Shugborough gives a big clue to the meaning of the monument, i.e. the Jacobite Rebellion. The Catholic families had to keep a low profile, hence priest holes, etc. The monument depicts the adoration of the shepherds at the Nativity. The woman is the Virgin Mary. She's on her own, mourning the loss of her son, but of course the tomb is empty. The Nativity and the grave are closely linked, from life to death to rebirth in heaven or Arcadia. The inscription, I believe, reveals the faith of the owner. The three Vs join together to form the glyph of the Virgin Mary, the letters A and M, Ave Maria, and as for the letters D-O-U-O-S, there is a letter missing to hide the word doulos, Greek for slave or servant. In other words, this is the owner's own adoration of the Virgin Mary. It is hidden because of the dangers involved in being a Catholic, hence the use of codes, including playing cards and songs. To confirm this, there are a number of ancient chapels marked within the area dedicated to the Virgin Mary, together with the Priory, the White Ladies. If you join up a line between the two churches of All Saints and the Virgin Mary with the Priory, then you'll see one of the triangles that appear on Poussin's painting, when geometry is applied. I have no idea what the glyph of the Virgin Mary is. There is something called the Ave Maria monogram, which is an interlocked M and A, and I guess if you take three Vs and turn them upside down and ignore the fact that you've got no bar for the A, then you can kind of make the monogram. But then, like, there's literally an A right there in between the Vs, so... Why, why am I trying to make sense of this? I don't know. Here's another one. It is the location and also a warning, and consists of precise days and events. Should men have this knowledge? I don't know just yet, but I would like to contact Oliver Lone and the hint it is in eight different languages. Eight different languages? Of course it is. How does that even work? Like, it spells the same word in eight different languages? Or that the cipher runs through eight different languages? Like, if it's just one letter per language, then what's the language of the word it's generating? Why am I trying to make sense of this? Here's the next one. Hi, what a coincidence. You have publicized the monument virtually the same time as the book that proposes a solution to the code is launched. There must be higher forces at play here. The monument is part of a bigger story and you are welcome to run with it as it hits the American media. The story is at www.thehiddenrecords.com. Click on the Da Vinci paintings, link with flame. See additional clues and wait for the unveiling next month. There are enough additional clues now for the public to decode the inevitable. All one must realize here is that the solution is the same for all the artwork. You might be more interested in the ancient star map material relating to this code found at Stonehenge. I fly to London in two weeks time. If you want the obvious solution in advance or an interview, I might consider exclusivity. I put the solution in on display at the Westminster archives a short while ago, but someone threatened my publicist and no media came to the event. There are people that are trying to prevent this solution being made public. Kind regards, Wayne Herschel, author. Oh man, exclusivity. Cannot think why the BBC did not snap this offer up. Anyway, 
I'll leave you with one final remark from one rather more cynical commenter. There is no idea so daft it cannot find idiots still dafter to take it seriously. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe on whatever podcatcher you're using. Rate and review the show, especially on Apple Podcasts. If you have questions, comments, corrections, feedback, want to suggest a topic, etc., you can find the podcast on Twitter at PoisonRoomPod or send an email to poisonroompodcast at gmail.com and use the tweets and the mails to let me know whether you want me to tackle the other books that have been written about the Shugborough inscriptions in pedantic detail too. Alternatively, find a BBC article, any BBC article where the comment section is still open, and tell me your thoughts there. Maybe one day I'll find it. Transcripts of all episodes are available at poisonroom.com, where you can also see the references and bibliography. As always, if these sources are publicly available, they're linked to. You have been listening to The Poison Room, a podcast that knows the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow. The voice of Margaret Litchfield was Mel from the Mysterious, Missing and Murdered podcast. The voice reading extracts from The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail was Inari Korka. The voice reading Sinead Davis's poem was Cat Lover. The voices of the comment section were Fiona Mitchell, Tim Stone, Z, Tom Embry, Leanna Nyenhouse, Jens Anderson, and Kirsty Reynolds. The voice in your ears has been too long to be publicated here when geometry is applied. <laughs>